Hello and welcome to the podcast, The Wanderer. Who was God? Many religions refer to God as the Father. Others are content to have a goddess mother. The knowledge of paternity is usually brought to a child's notice from the time it begins to say daddy. And in modern society, the explanation follows at puberty or thereabouts. The Indo-Europeans were wise. Children some 6,000 years ago, they knew their own fathers or at least they knew that a child had to have a father. This matter of paternity is by no means self-evident, as we may well understand when we consider the widespread religious belief in the God who is born fatherless, whose mother is extolled as a virgin. Even today, the Australian Aborigines of the Outback deny any part played by the male in the procreation of children. The Trobriand Islanders have no word in their language for father, because they recognise no such idea. The Trobrianders are willing to accept sexual intercourse as a pleasurable occupation complete in itself, a labour of love, a belief not half as unlikely as that once held among maidens in this country, that being kissed by a young man would make them pregnant. Motherhood is obvious, for anybody knows where the baby comes from. But the primitive peoples of millennia ago were arguing from the position of the Trobrianders and blackfellows when they postulated a divine family consisting of a virgin mother and her son. Our Indo-European ancestors had moved on beyond this stage of knowledge, for while they based their religion, religious concepts on the family, it was a family of which the head was a father, and this father was identified with the sky. As far as we know, nobody ever wrote down the name of the Indo-European sky father but from forms found in the languages which developed from Indo-European, we can construct the Skyfather's name tolerable certainty. It was either Jebs or Divos. Some examples of the form taken by the name in languages descended from the parent tongue are Sanskrit, Dios, Greek, Zeus and Latin, Jovis. Often the local word for father is tacked on the end of these names as Diospitar, Zeuspitar, and Jupiter. The meaning of Jevs and Divos was resplendent or shining. That is to say, the name covered the most striking and beneficent attributes of the sky. So the ancient Jevs is taken to be the sky father. Since the Indians, Greeks, and Romans all remembered the sky father, it would be odd if our own Northwest European ancestors did not, for he can be shown to be the original Indo European chief god and the Northwest Europeans were an important branch of the Indo-European speaking tribes. Does his name then appear in the oral or literary remains of our forefathers? Let me say bluntly, for authorities in the past have doubted it, that the answer is yes, and that the putative form of the name in primitive Northwest European speech was Tiwaz. That is to say, there were people in Northwest Europe who worshipped at the time of Christ a god called Tiwaz, and as a name and personage, Tiwaz was equivalent to Sanskrit Dia, Greek Zeus, and Roman Jovis. The name Tiwaz gave rise to Tiu among the Germans, Tir among the Scandinavians, and Tiu among the English. And all these forms are recorded. Now, if Tiwaz is accepted as the old sky father, one might go on to inquire if there are any myths still extant in which he figures as the Sky Father. I have to acknowledge at once that there is no direct reference to Tiwaz as a Sky Father 
among the literary remains of any of the Northwest European tribes. In other words, when we hear of Zhu Tir Otu, he is always spoken of as a god of war. Even the myths attached to Tiu's name as a war god have disappeared along with all other myths from old English records. But it is possible, by hypothesis and reference to old Norse tales, to uncover a number of myths which there is adequate reason to believe were originally told of the Sky Father. There is memory in Norse myth of a god who was once the chief deity, who was there in the beginning and who did have father as part of his name, being called in fact Alfur or Ulfather. I'm going to argue that Norse Ulfather and Tiwaz were originally one and the same. Most of the information about Ulfather comes from one source, the mythically late Prose Edda, written by Snorri Sturluson, who died in 1241. Snorri identifies Odin with Ulfather, but it is clear that these two gods were never one. Although it is obvious why Snorri makes the identification, namely because Odin had usurped Tiwa's place in answer to the question, who is the one who was there from the beginning of time? Who is the oldest of the gods? Snorri answers, he is called Allfather, so they say, and in the ancient Asgard he had twelve names. First Allfather, second Lord, or Lord of Armies, third Spear Lord, fourth Smiter, then All-Knowing, Fulfiller of Wishes, Far-Spoken, Shaker, Burner, Destroyer, Protector, and Twelfth Gelding. He lives through all time and he rules his kingdom with absolute power over all things, great and small. He created heaven and earth and sky and everything within them. But most wonderful was when he created man and gave him spirit, which shall be eternal and never fail, though the body drop to dust, or burned to ashes. Tiu then was originally the creator. Under his title, Allfather, he is depicted in the Prose Edda as the prime mover in one creation myth, which goes as follows. Once upon a time there was a giant called Nokvi. He appears to be connected with the moon, for his name in other Indo-European languages turns up in various forms, meaning ship. And Nukvi seems to be the helmsman of the moon regarded as a vessel sailing across the starry heavens. Nukvi had a daughter called Night, who was dark and dusky-haired, taking after her family, says Snorri. The maiden Night was given in marriage to three suitors called Naglfar, Anar and Deling. These names mean Twilight, the Second and Dawn. Night had a child by each of these fathers. By twilight she had a son named Space, by the second a daughter named Earth, and by dawn another son who took him after his father's side, being bright and fair. He was called Day. All the personages in this story are of the sky. But where is the sky father? The clue to solve the mystery lies with Anar the second. In his Edda, Snorri identifies Anar with Odin and says that Earth was his daughter and his wife also. Here is a case of attributes being transferred from one god to another, for when Odin became chief god, he assumed the mantle of the one he had dispossessed. We can be fairly certain that the second was originally the Sky Father, that is to say Tiwaz or Tiu, and that Twilight, the second, and Dawn are but three different manifestations of the one god, the ancient Yevs. 
more than a suspicion that the ancient Anglo-Saxons recollected the myth of Anars, that is, the old sky father or Tew, marriage to earth, is contained in the old English charm already quoted to restore fertility to the land. Ers, 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 mother of earth, hell to the earth, mother of men, grow and bring forth in God's embrace. There lived a witch in the forest called Ironwood, to the east of Midgard. In that same forest dwelt troll wives or ironwooders, the ancient witch of pharaoh giants by the dozen, and all in the likeness of wolves. It is from them that these two wolves come. Further, it is said, a really frightful one in line of descent called Moonhound shall throw out. He shall be filled with the flesh of all men who die. He shall swallow the moon and he shall sprinkle with blood all the sky and heavens at which the sun's light shall be put out and wind shall rise up and howl hither and yon. While the bones of this story were ancient, northwest European and without doubt Indo-European, the Northmen clothed them with the flesh of their own devising. They have given the myth a new shape which allows it to fall into place as a piece in their jigsaw puzzle, which at the last turns into the picture of a final destruction of heaven, earth, gods and men. This appears to be a, a peculiarly northern conception, probably to be narrowed down as only a Norwegian and Icelandic conception. There is no conclusive evidence that the Old English ever believed in the Ragnarok the doom of the divine powers, and yet there is a suspicion that they had heard of it and remembered it even after 400 years of Christianity when we find Wolfstan, Archbishop of York, crying out to the English in 1014. This world is rushing on to its end and the longer things have contact with the world, the worse they become. As because of people's sins, it must daily happen that evil will increase until the coming of Antichrist then indeed it will be horrible and terrifying throughout the world. Was Wolfstan recalling Christian superstition, old native pagan traditions, or was he influenced by contemporary Viking beliefs? It is perhaps impossible to decide. One doubts whether the Anglo-Saxons ever developed a full-blown Ragnarok myth. It may be objected that this myth is all very well for the Northmen but that there is no shred of direct evidence for its ever having been current among the English in England. Only recently was it brought to light after the manner of the Sky Father himself out of 1200 years of darkness in 1939 a mound of Sutton Hoo, one of a number on the east bank of the River Deben in Suffolk, was dug open and found to contain a shadow of a ship. I say shadow because the timber strakes had long since moulded to dust, though their lines were visible in the sandy soil, as were the rusty stains of the clenched house. The buried vessel had been a large rowing boat, unfit for further service, 80 feet long, 14 feet in beam, and drawing 2 feet of water. It had accommodation for more than 30 rowers. The undertakers had erected a little house of oak boards amidst him, which was found buried treasure indeed. There were 13 pieces of Byzantine silverware, nine silver-mounted drinking horns and a number of small gourds mounted with gold. There was a silver-plated iron helmet of ornate design with a face-shaped visor. There was similarly ornate shield. There was a set of buckles, clasps and other fittings in gold richly decorated with cloisonne work of garnet, mosaic, glass and filigree. 
There was also a standard of wrought iron, and in addition to this and other objects, there were a sword and a rich purse, top embellished with seven cloison plucks. Nor was the purse empty. It held a heap of 40 Merovingian gold coins, which made it sure that the date of the deposit was sometime after AD 650. All this treasure had been placed in the earth to honour some East Anglian warrior of high rank, perhaps a king, possibly Elfhere. In the objects brought to light at Sutton Hoo, we are fortunate to have corroboration of some of our theories concerning the myths and gods of the Old English, including the swallowing of the Sky Father. From that nightly swallowing, the Sky God returned each morning after his later deposition by the Northmen he was not allowed to return. Thank you for listening to this episode from the podcast, The Wanderer. If you enjoyed this episode, please tune in next time and please become a subscriber. Thank you very much. This episode would not have been viable if not for Brian Cranston and his book, The Lost Gods of England.